Chapter 21 I have, in general, not had fun during my service as a warden of the White Council. I have taken no enjoyment whatsoever in becoming a soldier in the war with the vampire courts, doing battle with the forces of... I was going to say evil, but I'm increasingly unsure exactly where everyone around me falls on the Jedi-Sith Index. Doing battle with the forces of things trying to kill me or my friends, or people who can't protect themselves, is not a rowdy summer adventure movie. It's a nightmare. Everything is violence and confusion, fear and rage, pain and exhilaration. It all happens fast, and there's never time to think, never any way to be sure of anything. It's awful, really. But I do have to admit that there's been one positive thing about the situation. I've gotten in a lot of extra practice at combat wizardry. And ever since New Mexico, I had absolutely no reservations about ripping ghouls apart with it. The nearest ghoul was the closest threat, but not the greatest opportunity. Still, if I didn't lay the smack down on him in a hurry, he'd rip my head off, or at least tie me up long enough for his buddies to mob me. Ordinarily, I'd have let him eat a blast of telekinetic force from the little silver ring I wore on my right hand, the one that stored up a little energy every time I moved my arm, and which was useless after being employed. I couldn't do that. Because I'd replaced the single silver ring with three circles of silver fused into a single band, each with the same potential energy as the original silver ring. Oh, and I had one of the new bands on every finger of my right hand. I raised my staff in my fist, bearing the rings to the ghoul, and as I triggered the first ring, snarled, See ya! Raw force lashed out at the ghoul, flung him off the end of the water beetle, and slammed him against the front of the ship, blocking us in, with enough force to break his back. There was a rippling crack. The ghoul's battle cry turned into an agonized scream, and he vanished into the cold waters of Lake Michigan. The first of his buddies was already in the air, boarding the water beetle just as the first had. I waited a half second, timing the arc of his jump, and before his feet touched down, I hit him just as I had the first one. This time, the ghoul flew back into a pair of its buddies already in the air behind him and dropped all three of them into the drink. Ghouls five and six were female, about which I did not care in the least, and I swatted them into the lake with two more blasts. So far, so good. But then four of them all leaped together, probably by chance rather than design, and I knocked down only two of them. The other two hit the deck of the water beetle and flung themselves at me, claws extended. No time for any tricks. I whirled my staff, planted the back end against the wheelhouse wall, and aimed the other at the nearest ghoul's teeth. It hit the ghoul with the tremendous power provided by his own supernatural strength and speed. Shattered bits of yellow fangs showered the deck as the ghoul rebounded. The second ghoul leaped straight over his buddy and got a really nice view of the barrel of the forty-four revolver I'd pulled from my duster's pocket with my left hand. The hand cannon roared, snapping the ghoul's head back, and it slammed into me. My back hit the wheelhouse hard enough to knock the breath from me, but the ghoul fell to the deck, writhing and screaming madly. I put two more shots into the ghoul's head from two feet away, and emptied the revolver into the skull of the one I'd stunned with my staff. Watery, 
brownish blood spattered the deck. By then, three more ghouls were on the deck, and I heard thunking sounds of impact over the side of the ship as two of the ghouls I'd knocked into the water sank their claws into the water beetle's planks and began swarming over the sides. I hit the nearest ghoul with another blast from one of my rings, sending it flying into its companions, but it brought me only enough time to raise my shield into a shimmering quarter dome of silver light. Two ghouls slammed against it, claws raking, and bounced off. Then the ghouls coming up the sides of the ship gained the deck behind the edge of my shield and hit me from the side. Claws raked at me. I felt a hot pain on my chin, and then heavy impacts as the talons struck my duster. They couldn't pierce it, but hit with considerable force, a sensation like being jabbed hard in the side with the rounded ends of multiple broom handles. I went down and kicked at a knee. It snapped, crackled, and popped, drawing a scream of rage from the ghoul. But its companion landed on me, forcing me to throw my left arm across my throat to keep him from ripping it out. My shield flickered and fell, and the other ghouls let out howls of hungry glee. A woman's voice let out a ringing, defiant shout. There was a roar of light and sound, a flash of scything, solid green light, and the ghoul atop me jerked as its head simply vanished from its shoulders, spraying foul-smelling brown blood everywhere. I shoved the still-twitching body off me and gained my feet even as Elaine stepped past me. She whirled that chain of hers over her head, snarling, Arios! Something that looked like a miniature tornado, illuminated from within by green light and laid on its side, formed in the air in front of her. The baby twister immediately began moving so much air so quickly that I had to lean away from the spell's powerful suction. The far end of the spell blew forth air in a shrieking column of wind so strong that as it played back and forth over the back end of the ship, it scattered ghouls like bits of popcorn in a blower. It also had the effect of ripping the thick, choking smoke away from the stairway leading below decks, and I hadn't even realized how dizzy I had begun to feel. I can't hold this for long, Elaine shouted. The ghouls began trying to get around the spell, more of them climbing the sides after being thrown into the lake again. I couldn't try whipping up a fire, not with all those fine wooden boats and docks and brimming fuel containers and resident boaters around. So I had to make do with using my staff, and not using magic either. That's the beauty of having a big heavy stick with you. Anytime you need to do it, you've got a handy head-cracking weapon ready to go. The ghouls tried climbing up the sides of the ship, but I started playing whack-a-mole as their heads or clawed hands appeared over the side. Thomas, I cried, we've got to get out of here. I could barely see anything through the smoke, but I could make out the shapes of some of the ghouls clambering up onto the dock, cutting us off from the shore. Get the boat loose, Elaine shouted. The ghoul's smoking vessel actually cruised into the rear of the water beetle, the impact forcing me to grab at the wheelhouse to keep my feet, and to stagger the other way a second later as the water beetle smashed into the dock. Not a chance. He's too close. Down, Thomas shouted, and I felt his hand shoved down hard on my shoulder. I ducked and saw the blued steel of his sawed-off shotgun as it went past my face. The thing roared, the sound painfully loud, and I was pretty sure I wouldn't hear anything out of that ear for a while. 
The blast caught the ghoul that had somehow sneaked up onto the top of the wheelhouse and had been about to leap down onto my shoulders. Ow, I shouted to Thomas. Thank you. Harry, Elaine shouted, her voice higher, now desperate. I looked past her and saw that her pet cyclone was slowing down. Several of the ghouls had managed to dig their claws into the deck and hang on, rather than being blasted off the end of the ship. This is bad, this is bad, this is bad, Thomas said. I know that, I shouted at him. A glance over my shoulder showed me Olivia's pale face on the stairs and the other women and children behind her. We'll never get them out of here on foot. They've got the docks cut off. Thomas took a quick glance around the ship and said, we can't cast off either. Harry! Elaine gasped. The light began to fade from her spell, the howl of wind dropping, the ugly heavy smoke beginning to creep back in. Ghouls are hard to kill. I'd done for two of them, Elaine for a third. But the others had mostly just been made angrier by getting repeatedly slammed in the kisser with blasts of force, followed by tumbles into the cold lake. Cold lake? Aha, a plan. Take this, I shouted and shoved my staff at Thomas. Buy me a few seconds. I spun to Olivia and said, everyone get ready to follow me, close. Olivia relayed that to the women behind her while I hurriedly jerked loose the knots that secured my blasting rod to the inside of my duster. I whipped out the blasting rod and looked out over the side of the ship farthest from shore. There was nothing but 30 feet of water, then the vague shape of the next row of docks. Thomas saw the blasting rod and swore under his breath, but he whirled my staff with grace and style, the way he does pretty much everything, then leaped past Elaine's fading spell and began battering ghouls. It's hard for me to remember sometimes that Thomas isn't human, no matter that he looks it and is my brother to boot. Other times, like this one, I get forcibly reminded about his true nature. Ghouls are strong and disgustingly quick, emphasis on disgusting. Thomas, though, drawing upon his darker nature, made them look like the faceless throngs of extras in an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. He moved like smoke among them, the heavy oak of my staff spinning, striking, snapping out straight and whirling away, driven at the attackers with superhuman power. I wanted to fight beside him, but that wouldn't get us away from this ambush, which was our only real chance of survival. So instead of rushing to his aid, I gripped my blasting rod, focused my will, and began to summon up every scrap of energy I could bring to bear. This spell was going to take a hell of a lot of juice, but if it worked, we'd be clear. I reminded myself of that as I stood frozen, my eyes half closed, while my brother fought for our lives. Thomas outclassed any single ghoul he was up against, but though he could cause them horrible pain, a bludgeoning tool was not a good weapon for actually killing them. He would have had to shatter several vertebrae or break open a skull to put one of them down. Had he stopped to take the focus he would need to finish off a single ghoul he'd temporarily disabled, the rest would have swarmed him. He knew it. They knew it too. They fought with a mindlessly efficient instinct of the pack, certain that they could, in a few moments, wear down their prey. Check that. It wouldn't even take that long. Once that smoke rolled in again, we'd last only a minute or three, breathing hard in exertion and fear as we all were. 
The gunfire and shrieking would have prompted a dozen calls to the authorities as well. I was sure I would be hearing sirens any minute, assuming the ear my brother had left intact was pointed that way. It was at that point that I realized something else. Someone was still on the boat, pinning the water beetle against the dock. Someone who had brought the ghouls over, who had been lying in wait near Thomas. Ghouls are hell on wheels for violence, but they don't tend to plan things out very well without outside direction. They certainly do not bother operating under a smoke screen. So whoever was driving the other boat probably wasn't a ghoul. Greycloak, maybe? Or his homie, passenger? That's when I realized something else. We didn't have even those couple of minutes it would take for the smoke to strangle us. Once the mortal authorities started arriving, whoever was in charge of the ghouls was sure to goad them into a more coordinated rush. And that would be that. A ghoul's flailing claw ripped through Thomas's jeans and tore into his calf. He lost his balance for a second, caught it again, and kept fighting as if nothing had happened. But blood, a little too pale to be human, dribbled steadily to the water beetle's deck. I clenched my teeth as the power rose in me. The hairs on my arms stood up straight, and there was a kind of buzzing pressure against the insides of my eardrums. My muscles were tensing, almost to the point of convulsing in a full-body Charlie horse. Stars swam in my vision as I raised the blasting rod. Harry, Elaine gasped. Don't be a fool, you'll kill us all. I heard her, but I was too far gone into the spell to respond. It had to work. I mean, it had worked once before. In theory, it should work again, if I could just get it to be a little bit bigger. I lifted my face and the blasting rod to the sky, opened my throat, and in a stentorian bellow shouted, Fuego! Fire exploded from the tip of the blasting rod, a column of white, hot flame as thick as my hips. It surged up into the smoke, burning it away as it went, rising into a fiery fountain a good 20 stories high. All magic obeys certain principles, and many of them apply across the whole spectrum of reality, scientific, arcane, or otherwise. As far as casting spells is concerned, the most important is the principle of conservation of energy. Energy cannot simply be created. If one wants a 20-story column of fire, hot enough to vaporize 10-gauge steel, the energy of all that fire has to come from somewhere. Most of my spells use my own personal energy, what is most simply described as sheer force of will. Energy for such things can also come from other sources outside of the wizard's personal power. This spell, for example, had been drawn from the heat energy absorbed by the waters of Lake Michigan. The fire roared up with a thunderous detonation of suddenly expanding air, and the shock wave from it startled everyone into dead silence. The lake let out a sudden, directionless, crackling snarl. In the space of a heartbeat, the water between where I stood and the next dock froze over, a sudden sheet of hard, white ice. I sagged with fatigue. Channeling so much energy through myself was an act that invited trauma and exhaustion, and a sudden weakness in my limbs made me stagger. Go! I shouted to Olivia. Over the ice. Run for the next dock, women and children first. 
Kill them! shouted a man's voice from the general direction of the attacking ship. The ghouls howled and leaped forward, enraged to see prey making good their escape. I leaned on the rail and watched Olivia and company flee. They hurried over the ice, slipping here and there. Crackling protests of the ice sounded under their feet. Spiderweb fractures began to spread, slowly but surely. I gritted my teeth. Even though Lake Michigan is a cold water lake, this was high summer. And even in the limited space I had frozen, there was an enormous amount of water that had to be chilled. Imagine how much fire it takes to heat a tea kettle to boiling, and remember that it works both ways. You have to take heat away from the kettle's water if you want to freeze it. Now, multiply that much energy by about a bergillion, because that's the amount of water I was trying to freeze. Olivia and the women and children made it to the far dock and fled in a very well-advised and appropriate state of panic. Harry, Elaine said. Her chain lashed out and struck a ghoul that had slipped by Thomas. They're clear, I cried. Go, go, go. Thomas, we is skedaddling. I stood up and readied my shield bracelet. Come on, Elaine told me, grabbing my arm. I shook my head. I'm the heaviest, I told her. I go last. Elaine blinked at me, opened her mouth to protest, then went very pale and nodded once. She vaulted the rail and ran for the docks. Thomas, I screamed, down. Thomas hit the deck without so much as looking over his shoulder, and the ghouls closed in. I triggered the rest of the kinetic rings, all of them at once. Ghouls tumbled and flew, but I'd bought us only a little time. Thomas turned and leapt over the side. I checked and saw that Elaine had reached the other dock. Thomas bounded over the ice like something from one of those Japanese martial arts cartoons, leaped, and actually turned a flip in the air before landing on his feet. I didn't want to come down too hard on the ice, but I didn't want to wait around until a ghoul ate me, either. I did my best to minimize the impact and started hurrying across. Ice crackled. On my second step, a sudden deep crack snapped open beneath my rearmost foot. Holy crap. Maybe I'd underestimated the energy involved. Maybe it had been two bajillion tea kettles. I took the next step and felt the ice groaning under my feet. More cracks appeared. It was only 20 feet, but the next dock suddenly looked miles away. Behind me, I heard ghouls charging, throwing themselves recklessly onto the ice once they saw my turned back. This is bad, this is bad, this is bad, I babbled to myself. Behind me, the ice suddenly screeched, and one of the ghouls vanished into the water with a scream of protest. More cracks, even thicker, began to race out ahead of me. Harry! Thomas screamed, pointing over my shoulder. I turned my head and saw Madrigal Wraith standing on the deck of the water beetle, not more than ten feet away. He gave me a delighted smile. Then he lifted a heavy assault rifle to his shoulder and opened fire. Chapter 22 I screamed in order to summon up my primal reserves, and to intimidate Madrigal into missing me, and definitely not because I was terrified. While I unleashed my sonic initiative, I also crouched down to take cover. To the untrained eye, 
it probably looked like I was just cowering and pulling my duster up to cover my head. But it was actually part of a cunning master plan designed to let me survive the next three or four seconds. Madrigal Wraith was Thomas's cousin and built along the same lines, slim, dark-haired, pale, and handsome, though not on Thomas's scale. Unfortunately, he was just as deceptively strong and swift as Thomas was, and if he could shoot half as well, there was no way he would miss me, not at that range. And he didn't. The spell work I'd laid over my duster had stood me in good stead on more than one occasion. It had stopped claws and talons and fangs, and saved me from being torn apart by broken glass. It had reduced the impact of various and sundry blunt objects, and generally preserved my life in the face of a great deal of potentially grievous bodily harm. But I hadn't designed the coat to stand up to this. There is an enormous amount of difference between the weapons and ammunition employed by your average Chicago thug and military-grade weaponry. Military rounds, fully jacketed in metal, would not smash and deform as easily as bullets of simple lead. They were heavier rounds, moving a lot faster than you get with civilian small arms, and they kept their weight focused behind an armor-piercing tip, all of which meant that while military rounds didn't tend to fracture on impact and inflict horribly complicated damage on the human body, they did tend to smash their way through just about anything that got in their way. Personal body armor, advanced as it is, is of very limited use against well-directed military-grade fire, particularly when exposed from 10 feet away. The shots hit me not in a string of separate impacts, the way I had thought it would be, but in one awful roar of noise and pressure and pain. Everything spun around. I was flung over the fracturing ice, my body rolling. The sun found a hole in the smoke and glared down into my eyes. I felt a horrible, nauseated wave of sensation flood over me, and the glare of light in my eyes became hellish agony. I felt suddenly weak and exhausted, and even though I knew there was something I should have been doing, I couldn't remember what it was. If only the damn light wouldn't keep burning my eyes like that. Wouldn't be so bad out here, I growled to Ramirez. I held up a hand to shield my eyes from the blazing New Mexico sun. Every morning it's like someone sticking needles in my eyes. Ramirez, dressed in surplus military BDU pants, a loose white cotton shirt, a khaki bush hat folded up on one side, wraparound sunglasses, and his usual cocky grin, shook his head. For God's sake, Harry, why didn't you bring sunglasses? I don't like glasses, I said. Things on my eyes, they bug me. Do they bug you as much as going blind? Ramirez asked. I lowered my hand as my eyes finished adjusting, and squinting hard made it possible to bear the glare. Shut up, Carlos. Who's a grumpy wizard in the morning? Carlos asked, in that tone of voice one usually reserves for favorite dogs. Get a couple of more years on you, and that many beers that late at night will leave you with a headache too, punk. I growled a couple of curses under my breath, then shook my head and composed myself as ought to be expected of a master wizard. Which is to say, I subtracted the complaining and was left with only the grumpy scowl. Who's up? Ramirez took a small notebook from his pocket and flipped it open. The terrible twosome, he replied. The Trailman twins. 
You're kidding, they're 12 years old. 16, Ramirez contradicted me. 12, 16, I said, they're babies. Ramirez's smile faded. They don't have time to be babies, man. They've got a gift for evocation, and we need them. Sixteen, I muttered. Hell's bells. All right, let's get some breakfast first. Ramirez and I marched to breakfast. The site Captain Lucio had chosen for teaching trainee wardens evocation had once been a boom town built up around a vein of copper that trickled out after a year or so of mining. It was pretty high up in the mountains, and though we were less than a 100 miles northwest of Albuquerque, we might as well have been camped out on the surface of the moon. The only indications of humanity for 10 or 12 miles in any direction were ourselves and the tumble-down remains of the town and the mine upslope from it. Ramirez and I had lobbied to christen the place Camp Kaboom, given that it was a boom town and we were teaching magic that generally involved plenty of booms of its own, but Lucio had overridden us. One of the kids had heard us, though, and by the end of the second day there, Camp Kaboom had been named, despite the disapproval of the establishment. The 40-odd kids had their tents pitched within the stone walls of a church someone had built in an effort to bring a little more stability to the general havoc of boom towns in the Old West. Lucio had pitched her tent with them, but Ramirez, me, and two other young wardens who were helping her teach had set up our tents on the remains of what had once been a saloon a brothel, or both. We'd taught kids all day in the evening, and once it had gotten cold and the trainees were asleep, we played poker and drank beer. And if I got enough in me, I would even play a little guitar. Ramirez and his cronies got up every morning, just as bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as if they'd had a full night's sleep. The cocky little bastards. Breakfast was dished up and served by the trainees every morning, built around several portable grills and several folded tables situated near a well that still held cool water, if you worked the weather-beaten pump long enough. Breakfast was little more than a bowl of cereal, but part of the little more was coffee, so I was surviving without killing anyone. If only because I took breakfast alone, giving the grumpy time to fade before exposing myself to anyone else. I collected my cereal, an apple, and a big cup of the holy mocha, walked a ways, and settled down on a rock in the blinding light of morning in desert mountains. Captain Lucio sat down beside me. Good morning, she said. Lucio was a wizard of the White Council, a couple of centuries old, and one of its more dangerous members. She didn't look like that. She looked like a girl not even as old as Ramirez, with long, curling brown locks, a sweetly pretty face, and killer dimples. When I'd met her, She'd been a lean, leathery-skinned matron with iron-gray hair, but a black wizard called the Corpse Taker had suckered her in a duel. Corpse Taker, then in Lucio's current body, had let Lucio run her through, and then Corpse Taker had worked her trademark magic and switched their minds into the opposite bodies. I'd figured it out before Corpse Taker had time enough to abuse Lucio's credibility, but once I'd put a bullet through Corpse Taker's head, there hadn't been any way for Lucio to get her original body back. So she'd been stuck in the young, cute one instead, because of me. She had also ceased taking to the field in actual combat, passing that off to her second-in-command, Morgan, while she ran the boot camp to train new wardens in how to kill things without getting killed first. Good morning, I replied. Mail came for you yesterday she said, and produced a letter from a pocket. 
I took it, scanned the envelope, and opened it. Hmm. Who's it from? She asked. Her tone was that of one passing the time in polite conversation. Warden Yoshimo, I said. I had a few questions for her about her family tree. See if she was related to a man I knew. Is she? Lucio asked. Distantly, I said, reading on. Interesting. At Lucio's polite noise of inquiry, I said, my friend was a descendant of Shotai. I'm afraid I don't know who that is, Lucio said. He was the last king of Okinawa, I said, and frowned, thinking it over. I bet it means something. Means something? I glanced at Captain Lucio and shook my head. Sorry, it's a side project of mine, something I'm curious about. I shook my head, folded up the letter from Yoshimo, and tucked it into the pocket of my jeans. It isn't relevant to teaching apprentices combat magic, and I should have my head in the game, not on side projects. Ah, Lucio said, and did not press for further details. Dresden, there's something I've been meaning to talk to you about. I grunted interrogatively. She lifted her eyebrows. Have you never wondered why you did not receive a blade? The wardens toted silver swords with them whenever there was a fight at hand. I had seen them unravel complex, powerful magic at the will of their wielders, which is one hell of an advantage when taking on anything using magic as a weapon. Oh, I said, and sipped some coffee. Actually, I hadn't really wondered. I assumed you didn't trust me. She frowned at me. I see, she said. No, that is not the case. If I did not trust you, I would certainly not allow you to continue wearing the cloak. Is there anything I could do to make you not trust me then? I asked, because I don't want to wear the cloak. No offense. None taken, she said. But we need you, and the cloak stays on. Damn. She smiled briefly. The expression had entirely too much weight and subtlety for a face so young. The fact of the matter is that the swords the wardens have used in your lifetime must be tailored specifically to each individual warden. They were also all articles of my creation, and I am no longer capable of creating them. I frowned and imbibed more coffee. Because, I gestured at her vaguely, she nodded. This body did not possess the same potential, the same aptitudes for magic as my own. Returning to my former level of ability will be problematical and will happen no time soon. She shrugged, her expression neutral, but I had a feeling she was covering a lot of frustration and bitterness. Until someone else manages to adapt my design to their own talents, or until I have retrained myself, I'm afraid that no more such blades will be issued. I chewed some cereal, sipped some coffee, and said, It must be hard on you, a new body, a big change after so long in the first one. She blinked at me, eyes briefly wide with surprise. I, yes, it has been. Are you doing okay? She looked thoughtfully at her cereal for a moment. Headaches, she said quietly. Memories that aren't mine. I think they belong to the original owner of this body. They come mostly in dreams. It's hard to sleep. She sighed. 
And of course, it had been a hundred and forty years since I'd put up with either sexual desire or a monthly cycle. I swallowed cereal carefully instead of choking. It sounds, uh, awkward and unpleasant. Very, she said, her voice quiet. Then her cheeks turned faintly pink. Mostly. Thank you for asking. Then she took a deep breath, exhaled briskly, and rose, all businesslike again. In any case, I felt I owed you an explanation. You didn't, I said, but thank you. Automatic weapons fire ripped the dew-spangled morning. Lucio was moving at a full sprint before I'd gotten my ass up off the rock. I wasn't slow. I'd been in enough scrapes that I don't freeze at the unexpected appearance of violence and death. Captain Lucio, however, had been in a lot more scrapes than that and was faster and better than me. As we ran, there was the continued chatter of weapons fire, screams, and then a couple of awfully loud explosions and an inhuman scream. I caught up to the captain of the wardens as we came into sight of the breakfast area, and I let her take the lead. I'm pig-headedly chivalrous, not stupid. The breakfast area was in a shambles. Folding tables had been knocked over. Blood and breakfast cereal lay scattered on the rocky ground. I could see two kids on the ground, one screaming, one simply doubled over in a fetal position, shaking. Others were lying flat, faces in the dirt. Maybe 30 yards away, in the ruins of what had been a blacksmith's shop, the only remaining brick wall was missing an enormous circle of stone, simply gone. Probably in one of those weird, silent green blasts Ramirez favored. I could see the barrel of a heavy weapon of some kind lying on the ground, neatly severed about a foot behind its tip. Whoever had been holding it was likely gone with the bricks of the wall. Ramirez's head appeared at the hole in the wall. He had dark brown fluid spattering one side of his face. Captain, get down! Bullets hissed down, making whistling, whipping sounds as they kicked up dirt a foot to Lucio's right, and the report of the shots reached us half a second later. Lucio didn't waver or slow. She threw her right hand out, fingers spread. I couldn't see what she'd done, but the air between us and the slope of the mountain above suddenly went watery with haze. Where? She shouted. I've got two wounded ghouls here, Ramirez shouted. At least two more upslope, maybe 120 meters. As he spoke, one of the other wardens rolled around the end of the broken wall, pointed his staff upslope, and spat out a vicious-sounding word. There was a low hum, a sudden flash, and a blue-white bolt of lightning snarled up the side of the mountain in the general direction of the shots. It struck a boulder with a roar and shattered it to gravel, a sight bizarre through the haze Lucio had conjured. Watch it, Ramirez screamed. They took two of our kids. The other warden shot him a horrified look and then dove for cover as more gunfire spat down the mountain. He let out a short, clenched-toothed scream and grabbed at his leg, and one of the kids not far from him gasped, clutching at her cheek. Damn it, snarled Lucio. She slid to a stop and raised her other hand, and the haze in the air became a rippling blur of moving color that made the entire mountainside look like some enormous desert-themed lava lamp. Shots began to ring out, singly, as the attacker fired randomly into the haze. Each one made trainees cringe and gasp. 
Trainees, stay down, Lucio trumpeted. Stay still, be quiet. Do not give your position away by sound or movement. Bullets struck the ground near her feet again as she spoke, drawing the fire to herself, but she didn't flinch though her face had already broken out in a sweat with a strain of holding up the broad obscurement spell. Dresden, she said between gritted teeth. Only one of those things is keeping fire on us. He's pinning us down while the other escapes with hostages. We must protect the trainees foremost, and we can't help the wounded while we're still taking fire. You hold the haze and keep them hidden, I said, drawing a shot in a puff of dirt of my own. I sidestepped judiciously. Shooter's mine. She nodded, but her eyes showed something of wounded pride as she said, Hurry, I can't hold it for long. I nodded to her and looked up the mountainside, and then I shook my head and drew up my sight. At once, my vision cut through Lucio's bewildering haze as though it had never existed. I could see the mountainside in perfect detail, even as it was in turn partially veiled by the vision my sight granted me, which showed me all the living magic in the world around us, all the traces of magic that had lingered before, including dozens of imprints made in the past few days, and hundreds of ghostly glimpses of particularly strong emotional images that had sunk into the area during its heyday. I could see where the girl who now lay shuddering with a bullet in her had tried to call up raw fire for the first time near a scorch mark upslope. I could see where a grizzled man, desperately addicted to opium and desperately broke, had shot himself more than a century ago, and where by night his shade still lingered, leaving fresh imprints behind. And I could see the little coiling cloud of darkness that formed the inhuman energy of the attacking ghoul, running hot on the emotions of battle. I marked the ghoul's location, lowered my sight, and took off at a dead sprint bounding up the slope and bouncing back and forth in a wavering line. It's damned hard to hit a target like that, even one growing steadily closer. And even with Lucio's haze to cover me, I didn't want to get shot if I could possibly avoid it. It was hard going, uphill, rough terrain, but it hadn't had time to get hot yet, and I practiced running regularly. Though, admittedly, I did it to give me the option of running away from bad guys more ably, not toward them. More shots rang out, but none of them seemed to come near. I kept my eyes locked on the spot on the slope where the ghoul lay shooting, probably behind cover. I couldn't see a thing through the haze, but as soon as it began to clear, I would present the ghoul with a clear target, either as I came through or when Lucio's power faltered and the spell fell. I had to get closer. I didn't have my blasting rod or staff with me, and without them to help me focus my magic, the range and accuracy of any spell I could throw at the ghoul would be drastically reduced. That's why I had to get closer before I took my shot. I couldn't hold a shield against bullets and attack at the same time, and the ghoul had to be taken out. I'd get only one shot, and if I missed, I'd be an easy target. I ran and watched and began to gather the power to throw at the ghoul. The haze abruptly cleared as I bounded over a patch of scrub growth. The ghoul crouched behind a rock, maybe twenty yards upslope, his face only barely distended as he held mostly to his human shape while employing the human weapon. A freaking Kalashnikov. Thank God. The weapon was tough and serviceable, 
but it wasn't exactly a sharpshooter's tool. If he'd been toting something more precise, he probably could have inflicted a lot more damage than he had. I was over to one side, and the ghoul was squinting hard down the rifle's sights, so that I was only a flicker of motion in the periphery of his focus. It took him a second to recognize the threat and whip the weapon toward me. I had time, and I threw out my hand and my will and snarled, Fuego! Fire bellowed forth from my right hand, not in a narrow beam, a jet of tightly focused energy, but in a roaring flood spilling out from my fingertips like water from a garden sprayer. A lot of it, way more than I intended. The fire got the ghoul all right, and the ground for 20 feet around him in every direction, more on the uphill side of him. The roar of flame gave way to a hideous shriek, and then a steady, chewy silence shrouded by black smoke. A low breeze, a herald of the day's oncoming heat, nudged the smoke away for a moment. The ghoul, now in its true form, lay outstretched on the scorched earth. It had been burned down to little more than an appallingly blackened skeleton, though one leg retained enough muscle matter to continue twitching and thrashing. Even then, the creature was not wholly dead. It didn't surprise me. In my experience, ghouls hadn't done much that wasn't disgusting. There was no reason to expect them to die cleanly, either. Once I was sure it wasn't getting back up, I scanned the mountainside, looking for any other sign of movement, but found nothing. Then I turned and hurried back down the slope to the encampment. Lucio was fully engaged in treating the wounded. Three had been hit by gunfire, and several others, including one of the other adult wardens, had been wounded by shards of shattered rock or splinters thrown from the folding tables and chairs. Ramirez came hurrying up to me and said, You get him? His eyes trailed past me to the enormous area blackened with smoke and a half a dozen patches of brush still on fire, and he said, Yeah, I guess you kind of did. Kind of, I agreed. You said they had two of our kids? He nodded once, his face grim. A terrible twosome. They were heading up the slope to find a spot above the camp for a lesson. Wanted to show off, I expect. Sixteen, I muttered. Jesus. Ramirez grimaced. I was yelling at them to come back when the ghouls hopped up out of the bush and brought them down, and the three assholes who had sneaked into the old smithy opened up. How are you at following tracks? I asked him. Thought they taught that Boy Scout stuff to all you Anglos. I grew up in L.A. I blew out a breath, thinking fast. Lucio's busy. She'll call in help for the wounded. That leaves you and me to go get the twins. Fucking right we will, Ramirez said. How? You got prisoners? The two I didn't blast, yeah. We'll ask them. Think they'll rat out their buddy? If they think it'll save their lives, I asked, in a heartbeat, maybe less. Weasels, Ramirez muttered. They are what they are, man, I said. There's no use in hating them for it. Just be glad we can use it to advantage. Let's go. Chapter 23 The ghouls lay covered in gray-white dust, as fine as baby powder. The remains of the wall Ramirez had blasted, their companion, his weapon, and the right arm and leg of one of the captive ghouls. The wounded ghoul, 
body shifted into its natural form under the stress of injury, lay panting and choking, spitting out dust. The second ghoul still looked mostly human and was dressed in a ragged old set of sand-colored robes that looked like something out of Lawrence of Arabia. Another Kalashnikov lay several feet away, behind Bill Myers, the young warden now standing over them with a double-barreled 10-gauge shotgun pointed at the unwounded one of the pair. Careful, Myers said. He had the rural drawl that seems largely common to any town west of the Mississippi, located more than an hour or so from a major city, though he was himself a Texan. I ain't searched them, and they don't appear to understand English. What? Ramirez said. That's stupid. Who bothers to sneak ghouls into the country's covert muscle if they can't pass as locals? Someone who doesn't have to worry about customs or border guards or witnesses or cops, I said quietly. Someone who takes them through the never-never straight here from wherever the hell they came from. I glanced back at Ramirez. How else do you think they got past the other wards and sentries and right up to the camp? Ramirez grunted. I thought we had those approaches warded too. Never-never's a tricksy kind of place, I said. Tough to know it all. Somebody was sneakier than us. Vampires? Ramirez asked. I very carefully said nothing about a black council. Who else would it be? Ramirez said something to them in Spanish. Shoot, Myers drawled. You think I didn't try that already? Hey, I said. I stepped closer to the unwounded ghoul and nudged him with one foot. What language do you speak? The not-quite-human-looking man shot a quick, furtive glance at me and then at his companion. He sputtered something quick and liquid-sounding. His companion snarled something back through its muzzle and fangs that sounded vaguely similar. Seconds were ticking by, and we had a pair of kids in the hands of one of these things. I directed my thoughts inward to the corner of my brain where Lashiel's shadow lived and asked, you get any of that? Lashiel's presence promptly responded, the first asked the second if he understood anything we were saying. The second replied that he hadn't, and you were probably deciding which one of us would kill them. I need to talk to them, I said. Can you translate for me? There was a sudden sense of someone standing close to me, an almost tangible physical sensation of someone slim and feminine pressed against my back, arms casually around my waist, soft breath and lips moving near my ear. It was odd, but not at all unpleasant. I caught myself enjoying it, and firmly reminded myself of the danger of allowing the demon to do that. With your permission, you need only speak to them in English, my host, Lashiel said. I will translate it between mind and mouth, and they will hear their tongue from your lips. I so did not need any image involving their tongues and my lips, I responded. Lashiel let out a delighted laugh that bubbled through my mind, and I was smiling a little when I faced the ghoul and said, Okay, asshole, I've got two kids missing, and the only chance you have of getting out of this alive is if I get them back. Do you understand me? Both ghouls looked up at me, surprise evident even on the inhuman one's face. I got a similar look from Ramirez and Myers. Do you understand me? I asked the ghouls quietly. Yes, stammered the wounded ghoul, apparently in English. 
Ramirez's dark, heavy eyebrows tried to climb up under his bush hat. I had to remind myself that this was not very cool. I was using a dangerous tool that would one day turn on me, no matter how savvy and tough it made me look in front of the other wardens. Kids, Harry, focus on the kids. Why did you take those children? I demanded of the ghoul. They must have wandered too close to Murzhek's position, the mostly human ghoul said. We did not come here for hostages. This was to be a raid. We were to hit you, then fade away. Fade to where? The ghouls froze and looked at each other. I drew back one of my hiking boots and kicked the mostly human ghoul in the face. He let out a high-pitched squeal, not a snarl of rage and pain, but a sound a dog makes when it's trying to submit beneath an attacker. Where? I demanded. Our lives, hissed the wounded ghoul. Promise us our lives and freedom, great one. Give us your word of truth. You gave up your freedom the moment you spilled our blood, I snarled. But if I get the kids back, you keep your life, I said. My word is given. The ghouls looked at each other, and then the more human of the pair said, The deep caves above this dwelling. The first deep shaft from the light of the sun. In the stones near it is a way to the realm of shadows. I shot a thought toward my interpreter. Does he mean the never-never? A region of it, yes, my host. Remain here, I told them. Do not move. Make no attempt to escape. At the first sign of disobedience or treachery, you will die. Great one, both of them said, and began pressing their faces into the gray dust and the sandy, rocky soil beneath. Great one. They've been taken to the mine, I told Ramirez. We go there. I turned to the other warden. Myers, they've surrendered. Don't take your eyes off of them for a second. If they twitch funny, kill them. Otherwise, leave them be. Right, he said. Let me get some of the trainees in here. I'll go with y'all. They're trainees, Ramirez said, his tone hard. You're the warden. Myers blinked at him, but then let out a gutsy exhalation and nodded. All right. Watch your ass, Los. Come on, I said to Ramirez, and the two of us ducked out of the ruins and ran for our tent. We recovered our gear from it, staves, Ramirez's silver sword and gray cape, my revolver and blasting rod and duster. Then I took off up the hill at the fastest pace I thought I could hold. Ramirez was built like an athlete, but he was more naturally inclined to sprints and bursts of strength. He probably lifted weights at the expense of doing as much running as I did. He was blowing pretty hard by the time we'd gotten halfway to the mine, and he was 50 yards behind me by the time I got there. My own lungs were tight and heaving. I could feel the beginnings of a good hard puking revving up in my belly, and my legs felt like someone had poured a gallon of isopropyl over them and ignited it, but there wasn't time to waste on recovering from the effort. The ghouls hadn't been there to take prisoners. This one might be smart enough to have kept the kids alive to use as hostages, but I'd never found ghouls to be particularly brilliant. And the one unwavering constant I'd observed among them was an inability to restrain their appetites for any length of time. I banged my staff hurriedly against the earth, calling up my will and reinforcing it with hellfire, a mystical source of energy Lashiel's presence gave me the ability to utilize.
I was already tired enough from my clumsy fire spell earlier and all the running that I didn't have much choice but to draw on the brimstone-scented energy and hope for the best. The runes in my staff blazed into light, and with a little effort of will I increased the effect until the smoldering scarlet glow spilled out in a wide circle around me. The entrance to the mine was choked with brush, low, and not ten feet in, one of the supports had collapsed, all but closing the place off from the outside. I had to slide in sideways, and once I was in, the dim light from the entrance and the scarlet glow pouring from my staff were the only illumination. I hurried forward, knowing Ramirez would be coming soon, but not willing to wait for him. The air turned cold within a dozen strides, and my panting breaths formed into tiny clouds as they left my mouth. The tunnel widened and then sloped sharply downhill. I kept my left side against the wall, my right hand holding forth my staff, both to provide me enough light to see and to make sure I had the weapon ready to interpose itself between me and anything that should come slobbering out of the shadows. A tunnel opened on my left, and as I went by it, I heard a snarling hiss come drifting and echoing from far down its length. I turned and hurried down it, coming upon an old track built into the floor, where ore carts would have trundled back and forth, carrying out the ore from where it was brought up a shaft from lower in the mine. The sounds grew louder as I continued, a broader variety of the same snarling hisses. And maybe a very soft whimper. I probably should have been cagey at that point. I probably should have gone still, doused my light, and sneaked up to see what I could find out about things. I considered a nice, cautious recon for maybe a quarter of a second. Screw that. There were kids in danger. I went through the remains of a wooden partition at a full charge. The ghoul, wholly inhuman, and wearing the same sand-colored robes the others had been, had his back to me and was clawing at a section of rough tunnel wall with both hands. They were dark with his own blood, and a couple of his claws had broken. He was uttering snarls between desperate gasps, and Lashiel was evidently still on the job. Betrayed, the ghoul snarled. Betrayed. Reckoning. Oh, yes. Balance of the scales. Let me in. Everything slowed down, thoughts burning through my mind at tremendous speed. I saw everything clearly, what was in front of me, what was in my peripheral vision, and everything seemed as bright and organized as a third grader's desk on the first day of school. The Trailman twins were fraternal, not identical. Terry, the brother, was a couple of inches shorter than his nominally younger sister, but he stuck so far out of his shirt and pants that he had seemed well on the way to reversing that situation. He'd never get to. His body was on the floor of the cave, his face covered in a mask of blood and torn flesh. The ghoul had ripped open his throat. He'd also gotten the femoral artery on Terry's thigh. The kid's mouth was open, and I could see the ghoul's disgusting blood clinging to Terry's teeth. His knuckles were ripped open, too. The kid had died fighting. Two feet farther on was the source of his motivation. Tina Trailman, 
lay on the stone, staring upward with glazed eyes. She was naked from the waist down. Her throat and trapezius muscles were mostly gone, ripped away, as were her modest breasts. The quadriceps muscle of her right leg was gone, the skin around it showing the roughly torn gouges of ghoul fangs. There was blood everywhere, a sticky pool forming around her. I saw her shudder a little. A tiny sound escaped her unmoving form. She was dead already, I knew that. I've seen it more than once. Her heart was still laboring, but whatever time she had left was a mere formality. My vision went red with rage, or maybe that was the hellfire. I called upon still more of the dark energy in mid-leap, staff gripped in both hands, and rammed the tip into the small of the ghoul's back as I snarled, Fuego! The blow, with all my weight and power and speed behind it, probably broke a couple of the ghoul's vertebrae all by itself. The fire spell came rushing out at the same time, filling the tunnel with thunder and light. Tremendous heat blossomed before me, rushed into the ghoul, and tore him in half at the waist. The same thermal bloom washed into the stone wall behind the creature and rebounded. I got an arm up to shield my face, and I dropped the staff so that I could draw my hands into my duster's sleeves. I managed to keep much skin from being directly exposed, but it hurt like hell all the same. I remembered that later. At the time, I didn't give a flying fuck. I kicked the ghoul's wildly thrashing lower body into the blackness of the mine shaft. Then I turned to the upper half. The ghoul's blood wasn't red, so he burned black and brown, like a burger that fell into the barbecue just as it was finished cooking. He thrashed and screamed and somehow managed to flip himself onto his back. He held up his arms, fingers spread in desperation, and cried, Mercy, great one, mercy! Sixteen years old. Jesus Christ. I stared down for a second. I didn't want to kill the ghoul. That wasn't nearly enough to cover the debt of its sins. I wanted to rip it to pieces. I wanted to eat its heart. I wanted to pin it to the floor and push my thumbs through its beady eyes and all the way into its brain. I wanted to tear it apart with my fingernails and my teeth and spit mouthfuls of its own pustuled flesh into its face as it died in slow and terrible agony. The quality of mercy was not hairy. I called up the hellfire again, and with a snarl, cast out the simple spell I used to light candles. Backed by hellfire, directed by my fury, it lashed out at the ghoul, plunged beneath its skin, and there it set fat and nerves and sinews alight. They burned, burned using the ghoul for tallow, and the thing went mad with pain. I reached down to the ghoul, caught him by the remains of his robes, and hauled him up to my eye level, ignoring the little runnels of flame that occasionally licked up from the inferno beneath the ghoul's skin. I stared into its face, then forced it to look at the bodies. Then I turned it back to me, and my voice came out in a snarl so inhuman that I barely understood it myself. 
Never, I told it. Never again. Then I threw it down the shaft. It burst into open flame a second later, the rush of its fall feeding the fires in its flesh. I watched it plummet, heard it wailing in terror and pain. Then, far below, it struck something. The flame flowered and brightened for a second. Then it began to slowly die away. I couldn't make out any details of the ghoul, but nothing moved. I looked up in time to see Ramirez come through the ruins of the wooden partition. He stared at me for a second, where I stood over the mine shaft, dark smoke rising from the surface of my duster, red light shining up from far below, the stench of brimstone heavy in the air. Ramirez is rarely at a loss for words. He stared for a moment, then his eyes tracked over to the dead kids. His breath escaped him in a short, hard jerk. His shoulders sagged. He dropped to one knee, turning his head away from the sight. Dios. I picked up my staff and started walking back to the camp. Ramirez caught up with me a few paces later. Dresden, he said. I ignored him. Harry? Sixteen, Carlos, I said. Sixteen. It had them for less than eight minutes. Harry, wait! What the hell was I thinking? I snarled, stepping out into the sunlight. Staff and blasting rod and most of my gear in the damn tent. We're at war. There was security in place, Ramirez said. We've been here for two days. There was no way you could know this was coming. We're wardens, Carlos. We're supposed to protect people. I could have done more to be ready. He got in front of me and planted his feet. I stopped and narrowed my eyes at him. You're right, he said. This is a war. Bad things happen to people, even if no one makes any mistakes. I don't remember consciously doing it, but the runes of my staff began to burn with hellfire again. Carlos, I said quietly, get out of my way. He ground his teeth, but his eyes flickered away from me. He didn't actually turn, but when I brushed past him, he didn't try to stop me. At the camp, I caught one brief glimpse of Lucio as she helped carry a wounded trainee on a stretcher. She stepped into a glowing line of light in the air, an opened way to the never-never, and vanished. Reinforcements had arrived. There were wardens with medical kits, stretchers, the works, trying to stabilize the wounded and get them to better help. The trainees looked shocked, numb, staring around them, and at two silent shapes lying close together over to one side, covered from their heads to their knees by an unzipped sleeping bag. I stormed into the smithy and snarled, Fozari! Putting all my rage and will into a lashing column of force directed at the captured ghouls, a spell blew the remaining wall of the smithy and the two ghouls 50 feet through the air and onto a relatively flat area of the street. I walked after them. I didn't hurry. In fact, I picked up a jug of orange juice off one of the breakfast tables and drank some of it as I went. The mountainside was completely silent. Once I reached them, another blast opened up a six-foot crater in the sandy earth. I kicked the mostly human ghoul into it 
and with several more such blasts, collapsed the crater in on him, burying him to the neck. Then I called fire and melted the sand around the ghoul's exposed head into a sheet of glass. It screamed and screamed, which did not matter to me in the least. The sheer heat of the molten sand burned away its features, its eyes, its lips and tongue, even as the trauma forced the ghoul into its true form. I upended the jug of juice. Some of it splashed on the ghoul's head. Some of it sizzled on the narrow band of glass around it. I walked calmly, pouring orange juice on the ground in a steady line until 10 feet later, I reached the enormous nest of fire ants one of the trainees had stumbled into on our first day at Camp Kaboom. Presently, the first scouts started following the trail back to the ghoul. I turned on the second ghoul. It cringed away from me, holding completely still. The only sound was the raw whisper screams of the other ghoul. I'm not going to kill you, I told the ghoul in a very quiet voice. You get to carry word to your kind. I thrust the end of my staff against its chest and stared down. Wisps of sulfurous smoke trickled down the length of the wooden shaft and over the maimed ghoul. Tell them this, I leaned closer. Never again, tell them that, never again, or hell itself will not hide you from me. The ghoul groveled, great one, great one. I roared again and started kicking the ghoul as hard as I could. I kept it up until it floundered away from me, heading for the open desert with only one leg and one arm, the movements freakish and terrified. I watched until the maimed ghoul was gone. By then, the ants had found his buddy. I stood over it for a time and beheld what I had wrought without looking away. I felt Ramirez's presence behind me. Dios, he whispered. I said nothing. Moments later, Ramirez said, What happened to not hating them? Things change. Ramirez didn't move, and his voice was so low I could barely hear it. How many lessons will it take the kids to learn this one, do you think? The rage came swarming up again. Battle is one thing, Ramirez said. This is something else. Look at them. I suddenly felt the weight of dozens and dozens of eyes upon me. I turned to find the trainees, all pale, shocked, and silent, staring at me. They looked terrified. I fought the frustration and anger back down. Ramirez was right. Of course he was right. Damn it. I drew my gun and executed the ghoul. Dios, Ramirez breathed. He stared at me for a moment. Never seen you like this. I started feeling the minor burns. The sun began turning Camp Kaboom into a giant cookie sheet that would sear away anything soft. Like what? Cold, he said finally. That's the only way to serve it up, I said. Cold. 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 I came back to myself. No more New Mexico.
Dark, cold, so cold that it burned, chest tight. I was in the water. My chest hurt. I managed to look up. Sun shone down on fractured ice about eight inches thick. It came back to me. The battle aboard the water beetle, the ghouls, the lake. The ice had broken and I had fallen through. I couldn't see far, and when the ghoul came through the water, swimming like a crocodile, its arms flat against its sides, it was close enough to touch. It spotted me at the same time and turned away. Never again. I reached out and grabbed onto the back of the jeans the ghoul still wore. It panicked, swimming fast, and dived down into the cold and dark, trying to scare me into letting go. I was aware that I had to breathe and that I was already beginning to black out. I dismissed it as unimportant. This ghoul was never going to hurt anyone else, ever again, if I had to die to make sure of it. Everything started going dark. And then there was another pale shape in the water. Thomas, this time, shirtless, holding that crooked knife in his teeth. He closed on the ghoul, which writhed and twisted with such fear and desperation that it tore my weakening fingers loose from their grip. I drifted, feeling something cold wrap around my right wrist, feeling light coming closer, painfully bright. And then my face was out of the frozen water, and I sucked in a weak gasp of air. I felt a slender arm slip under my chin, and then I was being pulled through the water. Elaine, I'd recognize the touch of her skin to mine anywhere. We broke the surface, and she let out a gasp, then started pulling me toward the dock. With the help of Olivia and the other women, Elaine managed to get me up out of the lake. I fell to my side and lay there shivering violently, gasping down all the air I could. The world slowly began to return to its usual shape, but I was too tired to do anything about it. I don't know how much time went by, but the sirens were close by the time Thomas appeared and hauled himself out of the water. Go, Thomas said. Can he walk? Is he shot? No, Elaine said. It might be shock, I don't know. I think he hit his head on something. We can't stay here, Thomas said. I felt him pick me up and sling me over a shoulder. He did it as gently as such a thing can be done. Right, Elaine said. Come on. Everyone, keep up and don't get separated. I felt motion. My head hurt. A lot. I gotcha, Thomas said to me as he started walking. It's cool, Harry, he murmured. They're safe. We got everyone clear. I gotcha. My brother's word was good enough for me. I closed my eyes and stopped trying to keep track of things. Chapter 24 The touch of very warm, very gentle fingers woke me. My head hurt, even more than it had after Cowl had finished ringing my bells the night before, if such a thing was possible. I didn't want to regain consciousness if it meant rising into that. But those soft, warm fingers touched me, steady and exquisitely feminine, and the pain began to fade. That had the effect it always did. When the pain was gone, its simple lack was a nearly narcotic pleasure of its own. 
It was more than that, too. There is a primal reassurance in being touched, in knowing that someone else, someone close to you, wants to be touching you. There is a bone-deep security that goes with the brush of a human hand, a silent, reflex-level affirmation that someone is near, that someone cares. It seemed that lately I had barely been touched at all. Damn it, Lash, I mumbled. I told you to stop doing that. The fingers stiffened for a second, and Elaine said, What was that, Harry? I blinked and opened my eyes. I was lying on a bed in a dim hotel room. The ceiling tiles were old and water-stained. The furniture was similarly simple, cheap, battered by long and careless use and little maintenance. Elaine sat at the head of the bed with her legs crossed. My head lay comfortably upon her calves, as it had so many times before. My legs hung off the end of the bed, also as they had often done before, a long time ago, in a house I barely remembered except in dreams. Am I hurting you, Harry? Elaine pressed. I couldn't see her expression without craning my neck, and that seemed a bad idea, but she sounded concerned. No, I said. No, just waking up groggy. Sorry. Ah, she said. Who is Lash? No one I especially want to discuss. All right she said. There was nothing but gentle assent in her tone. Then just lie back for a few moments more and let me finish. Your friend the vampire said they'd be watching the hospitals. What are you doing? I asked her. Reiki, she replied. Laying on of hands, I said. That stuff works? The principles are sound, she said, and I felt something silky brush over my forehead. Her hair. I recognized it by touch and smell. She had bowed her head in concentration. Her voice became distracted. I was able to combine them with some basic principles for moving energy. I haven't found a way to handle critical trauma or to manage infections, but it's surprisingly effective in handling bruises, sprains, and bumps on the head. No kidding. The headache was already gone completely. The tightness in my head and neck was fading as well as were the twinges in my upper back and shoulders. And a beautiful woman was touching me. Elaine was touching me. I wouldn't have done anything to stop her if I'd had a thousand paper cuts and she'd soaked her hands in lemon juice. We simply stayed like that for a time. Once in a while she moved her hands, palms running down lightly over my cheeks, neck, chest. Her hands would move in slow, repetitive stroking motions, barely touching my skin. I'd lost my shirt at some point. All of those aches and pains of exertion and combat faded away, leaving only a happy cloud of endorphins behind. Her hands were warm, slow, infinitely patient, and infinitely confident. It felt amazing. I drifted on the sensations, utterly content. All right, she said quietly, an unknown amount of time later. How does that feel? Incredible, I said. I could hear the smile in her voice. You always say that when I'm done touching you. Not my fault if it's always true, I replied. Flatterer, 
she said, and her fingers gently slapped one of my shoulders. Let me up, ape. What if I don't want to, I drawled. Men, I pay you the least bit of attention and you go completely paleolithic on me. Ugh, I replied, and slowly sat up, expecting a surge of discomfort and nausea as the blood rushed around my head. There wasn't any. I frowned and ran my fingers lightly over my scalp. There was a lump on the side of my skull that should have felt like hell. Instead, it was only a little tender. I've been thumped on the melon before. I know the residue of a hard blow. This felt like a bad one, only after I'd had about a week to recover. How long have I been down? Eight hours, maybe? Elaine asked. She rose from the bed and stretched. It was every bit as intriguing and pleasant to watch as I remembered. I sort of lose track when I'm focused on something. I remember, I murmured. Elaine froze in place, and her green eyes glittered in the dimness as she met my gaze in a kind of relaxed, insolent silence. Then a little smile touched her lips. I suppose you would. My heart lurched and sped up, and I started getting ideas none of which could be properly pursued at the moment. I saw Elaine reach the same conclusion at about the same time I did. She lowered her arms, smiled again, and said, Excuse me, I've been sitting there a while. Then she paced into the bathroom. I went to the hotel's window and opened the cheap blinds a tiny bit. We were somewhere on the south side. Dusk was on the city the streetlights already flickering into life one by one as the shadows crept out from beneath the buildings and oozed slowly up the light poles. I checked around but saw no shark fins circling, no vultures wheeling overhead, and no obvious ghouls or vampires lurking nearby, just waiting to pounce. That didn't mean they weren't there, though. I went to the door and touched it lightly with my left hand. Elaine had spun another ward over the door, a subtle, solid crafting that would release enough kinetic energy to throw anyone who tried to open it a good 10 or 12 feet away. It was perfect for a quick exit if you were expecting trouble and ready for it when it arrived. Just wait for the bad guy to get bitch slapped into the parking lot, then dash out the door and run off before he regained his feet. I heard Elaine come out of the bathroom behind me. What happened? I asked. What do you remember? Madrigal opened up with that assault rifle, flash of light, then I was in the water. Elaine came to stand next to me and also glanced out. Her hand brushed mine when she lowered it from the blinds, and without even thinking about it, I twined my fingers in hers. It was an achingly familiar sensation, and another pang of half-remembered days long gone made my chest ache for a second. Elaine shivered a little and closed her eyes, her fingers tightened very slightly on mine. We thought he'd killed you, she said. You started to crouch down, and there were bullets shattering the ice all around you. You went into the water, and the vampire, Madrigal, did you say his name was? He ordered the ghouls in after you. I sent Olivia and the others to the shore, and Thomas and I went into the water to find you. Who hit me in the head, I asked. Elaine shrugged. Either a bullet hit your coat after you crouched down and then bounced off your thick skull without penetrating, 
or you slammed it against some of the shattered ice as you went under. A bullet might have bounced off my head, thanks to the intervening fabric of my spell-covered coat. That was a sobering sort of thing to hear, even for me. Thank you, I said, for getting me out. Elaine arched an eyebrow, then gave me a little roll of her eyes and said, I was bored and didn't have anything better to do. I figured, I said. Thomas? He's all right. He had a car near the docks. I drove that clown car of yours, and we shoehorned everyone into them and got away clean. With any luck, Madrigal had a tougher time avoiding the cops than we did. Nah, I said with total conviction. Too easy. He got away. Where's Thomas? Standing watch outside, he said. Elaine frowned. He looked very pale. He refused to stay in the room with his refugees, or me, for that matter. I grunted. Thomas had really put on his super vamp cape back at the harbor. Under ordinary circumstances, he was surprisingly strong for a man of his size and build. But even unusually strong men don't go toe-to-toe with ghouls armed with nothing but a big stick and come away clean. Thomas could make himself stronger, a lot stronger, but not forever. The demon knit to my brother's soul could make him into a virtual godling, but it also increased his hunger for the life force of mortals, burning away whatever he had stored up in exchange for the improved performance. After that fight, Thomas had to be hungry. So hungry that he didn't trust himself in a room with anyone he considered, well, edible. Which, in our escape party, had been everyone but me and the kids. He must have been hurting. What about the Ordo? I asked her quietly. I didn't want to go until I could be certain that I wouldn't lead anyone back to them. I called them every couple of hours to make sure they were all right. I should check in with them again. She turned to the phone before she finished the sentence and dialed a number. I waited. She was silent. After a moment, she hung up the phone again. No answer, I said quietly. No, she said. She turned to the dresser, gathered up her length of chain, and threaded it through the loops of her jeans like a belt, fastening it with a slightly curved piece of dark wood bound with several bands of colored leather which she slipped through two links. I opened the door and stuck my head out into the twilight, looking around. I didn't see Thomas anywhere, so I let out a sharp, loud whistle, waved an arm around a little, and ducked back inside, closing the door again. It didn't take long for Thomas's footsteps to reach the door. Harry, Elaine said, mildly alarmed, the ward. I held up a forefinger in a one-second kind of gesture, then folded my arms, stared at the door, and waited. The doorknob twitched. There was a heavy thud, a gasp of surprise, and a loud clatter of empty trash cans. I opened the door and found my brother flat on his back in the parking lot, amidst a moderate amount of spilled garbage. He stared up at the sky for a moment, let out a long-suffering sigh, and then sat up, scowling at me. Oh, sorry about that. I said with all the sincerity of a three-year-old claiming he didn't steal that cookie all over his face. Maybe I should have uh, told you about a potentially dangerous situation, huh? I mean, that would have been polite of me to warn you, right? And sensible, and intelligent, and respectful. 
And I get it, I get it, he growled. He got up and made a doomed effort to brush various bits of unsavory matter off his clothes. Jesus Christ, Harry, there are days when you can be a total prick. Whereas you can apparently be a complete moron for weeks at a time. Elaine stepped up beside me and said, I love to see a good testosterone-laden alpha male dominance struggle as much as the next woman. But don't you think it would be smarter to do it where half of the city can't see us? I scowled at Elaine, but she had a point. I stepped out the door and offered Thomas my hand. He glowered at me, then deliberately ran his hand through some of the muck and held it out to me without wiping it off. I rolled my eyes and pulled him to his feet, and then the three of us went back into the room. Thomas leaned his back against the door, folded his arms, and kept his eyes on the floor while I went to the sink and washed off my hands. My coat hung on one of the wire hangers on the bar beside it, as did my shirt. My staff rested in the corner by the light switch, and my other gear was on the counter. I dried off my hands and started suiting up. Okay, Thomas, I said. Seriously, what's up with the secrecy? You should have contacted me. I couldn't, he said. Why not? I promised someone I wouldn't. I frowned at that, tugging the still damp black leather glove onto my disfigured left hand and tried to think. Thomas and I were brothers. He took that every bit as seriously as I did, but he took his promises seriously too. If he'd made the promise, he had good reason to do so. How much can you tell me? Elaine gave me a sharp glance. I've already said more than I should have, Thomas said. Don't be an idiot. We've obviously got a common enemy here. Thomas grimaced, gave me a hesitant glance, and then said, We've got several. I traded a glance with Elaine, who glanced at Thomas, shrugged, and suggested, Bruises fade? No, I said. If he isn't talking, he has a good reason for it. Beating him up won't change that. Then we should stop wasting time here, Elaine said quietly. Thomas looked back and forth between us. What's wrong? We've lost contact with the women Elaine is protecting, I said. Damn it, Thomas pushed his hand back through his hair. That means... I fastened the clasp on the new shield bracelet. What? Look. You already know Madrigal is around, Thomas said. And that he's always sucking up to House Malvora, I said. I frowned. For the love of God. He's the passenger. He's the one working with Greycloak the Malvora. I didn't say that, Thomas said quickly. You didn't have to, I growled. He didn't just happen to show up for some payback while this other stuff was going on. And it all fits. Passenger was talking to Greycloak, about having the resources to take me out. He obviously decided to take a whack at it with a bunch of ghouls and a machine gun. Sounds reasonable, Thomas said. You already know that there's a Scavis around. Yes. Time to do some math then, Harry. Madrigal and Grey Cloak the Malvora, I murmured. The genocidal odd couple, neither of which is a Scavis. Elaine drew in a sharp breath and said, at the same time I was thinking it, it means that we aren't talking about one killer. I completed the thought. 
We're talking about three of them. Gray Cloak Malvora, Passenger Madrigal, and Serial Killer Scavis. I frowned at Thomas. Wait, are you saying that... My brother's expression became strained. I'm not saying anything, he replied. Those are all things you already know. Elaine frowned. You're trying to maintain deniability, she said. Why? So I can deny telling you anything, obviously, Thomas snarled, his eyes suddenly flickering several shades of gray lighter as he stared at Elaine. Elaine drew in a sharp breath. Then she narrowed her eyes a little, unfastened the clasp on her chain, and said, Stop it, vampire. Now. Thomas's lips pulled back from his teeth, but he jerked his face away from her and closed his eyes. I stepped between them as I shrugged into my leather duster. Elaine, back off. The enemy of my enemy, okay? I don't like it, Elaine said. You know what he is, Harry. How do you know you can trust him? I've worked with him before, I said. He's different. How? A lot of vampires feel remorse about their victims. It doesn't stop them from killing over and over. It's what they are. I've gazed him, I said quietly. He's trying to rise above the killer inside him. Elaine's brows knit into a frown at those words, and she gave me a slow and reluctant nod. Aren't we all, she murmured. I'm still not comfortable with the notion of him near my clients, and we need to get moving. Go ahead, Thomas said. I didn't look at my brother, but I said, you need to eat. Maybe later, Thomas said. I can't leave the women and children unguarded. I grabbed a pad of cheap paper with the hotel's logo and found a pencil in one of my pockets. I wrote a number on it and passed it to Thomas. Call Murphy. You won't be able to protect anyone if you're too weak, and you might kill one of them if you lose control of the hunger. Thomas's jaw tightened with frustration, but he took the offered piece of paper from my hand, only a little more roughly than necessary. Elaine studied him as she walked to the door with me. Then she said to him, You're different from most of them, aren't you? Probably just more deluded, Thomas replied. Good luck, Harry. Yeah, I said, feeling awkward. Look, after this is done, we have to talk. There's nothing to talk about, my brother said. We left, and I closed the door behind us. We took the Blue Beetle back to the Amber Inn and went to Elaine's room. The lights were off. The room was empty. There was a terrible sewer smell in the air. Damn it, Elaine whispered. She suddenly sagged and leaned against the doorway. I stepped past her and turned on the light in the bathroom. Anna Ash's corpse stood in the shower, body stiff, leaning away from the shower head but held in place by the electrical cord of a hairdryer, tied in a knot about the shower head and another around her neck. There hadn't been room enough for her to suspend herself with her feet off the floor. Ugly purple-black ligature marks showed on her neck around the cord. It was obviously a suicide. It obviously wasn't. We were too late. Chapter 25 
We've got to call the cops on this one, I said quietly to Elaine. No, she replied. They'll want to question us. It'll take hours. They'll want to question us a lot longer if someone else finds the body and they have to come looking for us. And while we're cooperating with the authorities, what happens to Abby, Helen, and Priscilla? She stared at me. For that matter, what happens to Mouse? That was a thought I had been trying to avoid. If Mouse was alive and capable, there was no way he'd let any of the women be harmed. If someone had killed Anna when Mouse was near, it could have happened only over his dead body. But there was no sign of him. That could mean a lot of things. At worst, it meant that he had been utterly disintegrated by whatever had come for the women. Not only was that assumption depressing as hell, it also didn't get me anywhere. A bad guy who could simply disintegrate anything that got in the way sure wouldn't be pussyfooting around the way these white court yahoos had been. Mouse wasn't here. There was no mess, no sign of a struggle. And believe you me, that dog can put up a struggle, as the vets found out when they misfiled his paperwork. They tried to neuter him instead of vaccinating him and getting his shoulder x-rayed where he'd bounced off of a moving minivan. I was lucky they were willing to let me pay for the property damage and leave it at that. It had to mean something else. Maybe my dog had left with the others and Anna had remained behind or gone back for something she forgot. Or maybe Mouse had played on everyone's expectation that he was just a dog. He'd shown me that he was capable of that kind of subterfuge before. And it had been one of the first things that tipped me off to his distinctly superior to canine intellect. What if Mouse had played along and stayed close to the others? Why would he do that, though? Because Mouse knew I could find him. Unless the bad guys carried him off to the never-never itself, or put him behind a set of wards specifically designed to block such magic, my tracking spell could find him anywhere. That was the path to take, even if Mouse didn't know anything was wrong. He would have stayed with any members of the Ordo that he could, and I had taken to planning ahead a little more than I used to do. I could use my shield bracelet to target the single small shield charm I'd hung from his collar for just such an emergency. Me and Foghorn Leghorn. Can you find the dog? Elaine asked. Yeah, but we should try calling their homes before we go. Elaine frowned. You told them to stay here or somewhere public. Odds are pretty good that they're scared. And when you're scared, you want to go home, Elaine finished. If they're there, it'll be the quickest way to get in touch. If not, it hasn't cost us more than a minute or two, Elaine nodded. Anna had all the numbers in a notebook in her purse. We turned up the purse after a brief search, but the notebook wasn't in it. There wasn't anything for it but to make sure that Anna hadn't slipped it into a pocket before she died. I checked and tried not to leave any prints, almost as hard as I tried not to look at her dead, purpling face or glazed eyes. It hadn't been a clean death. And even though Anna hadn't been gone long enough to start decomposition, the smell was formidable. I tried to ignore it. It was harder to ignore her face. The skin had the stiff, waxy look that dead bodies get. Worse, there was a distinct 
and unquantifiable quality of absence. Anna Ash had been very much alive, fierce of will, protective, determined. I know plenty of wizards without the force of personality she had. She'd been the one thinking and acting when all those around her were frightened. That takes a rare kind of courage. None of which meant anything, since despite my efforts, the killer had taken her anyway. I shook my head and stepped away from the corpse, having turned up no notebook. Her willingness to face danger on behalf of her friends couldn't be allowed to vanish silently into the past. If some of those she sought to protect were still alive, then her own sacrifice and death could still mean something. I could be bitter about her death later. I would be doing a grave disservice to the woman if I let it do anything but make me more motivated to stop the killers before they had finished their work. I came face to face with Elaine, who stood in the doorway staring at Anna's body. There was no expression on her face, absolutely none. Tears, though, had reddened her eyes and streaked over her cheeks and down her nose. Some women are pretty when they cry. Elaine gets all blotchy and runny-nosed, and it brought out the dark, tired circles beneath her eyes. It didn't look pretty. It just looked like pain. She spoke, and her voice came out rough and quavering. I told her I would protect her. Sometimes you try, I said quietly. Sometimes that's all you do. Try. That's how the game works. Game, she said. A single word was caustic enough to melt holes in the floor. Has it ever happened to you? Someone who came to you for help was killed? I nodded. A couple of times. First time was Kim Delaney, a girl I had trained to keep her talent under control. Maybe a little stronger than the women in the Ordo, but not much. She got involved in bad business, over her head. I thought I could warn her off, that she would listen to me. I should have known better. What happened? I tilted my head back at the body behind me without actually looking. Something ate her. I go to her grave sometimes. Why? To bring her some flowers and sweep off the leaves. To remind me of the stakes I play for. To remind me that nobody wins them all. And after? Elaine asked me quietly. She hadn't looked away from the corpse, not for a second. What did you do to the thing that killed her? It was a complicated answer, but it wasn't what Elaine needed to hear right then. I killed it. She nodded again. When we catch up to the Scavis, I want it. I put a hand on her shoulder and said very gently, it won't make you feel any better. She shook her head. That's not why I want to do it. It was my job. I've got to finish my job. I owe her that much. I didn't think Elaine herself thought the statement was untrue, but I'd gone through this kind of thing before, and it can unbalance your tires pretty damn quick. There was no point, though, in trying to discuss it with her rationally. Reason had left the building. You'll get him, I said quietly. I'll help. She let out one little broken, cawing sob and pressed against my chest. 
I held her, warm and slender, and felt the terrible remorse and frustration and grief that coursed through her. I pressed my presence against her and tightened my arms around her and felt her body shaking with silent sobs. More than anything, at that moment, I wished I could make her torment go away. I couldn't. Being a wizard gives you more power than most, but it doesn't change your heart. We're all human. We are all of us, equally naked before the jaws of pain.